Greetings and welcome to another installment of Witnesses of the King. Witnesses of the King. I am Eric Newcomer and today we're going to talk about Acts chapter 2 verses 42 and following. Mostly we're going to focus on verse 42. And we're talking about a series called Witnesses of the King, which is a series going through the book of Acts. And we're taking a close look at the early church. What was the content of their preaching? What was, how was God working by his Holy Spirit to build the church of Jesus Christ? And so because this is a foundational book, it's a history of the very beginning. It's very helpful uh, for a believer today in order to filter out what is tradition and what is actually biblical in our faith and practice as believers in Jesus Christ. Well, turn to uh, Acts chapter 2 while I go through a bit of an introduction here. I want to talk about a a few key words, a couple terms we need to understand if we're going to talk about these things. And I want to begin with a question. And the question is this, what does it mean to go to church? When we say we're going to church, that usually refers to the fact that we are proceeding to some kind of a building in which believers in Jesus Christ are coming together in order to do something. And generally that kind of thing is what we call our worship service or our Sunday school or something of that nature. And those things are generally worship. But take a look at uh, the, the very concept of what it means to go to church and understand this. The word church is not used that way anywhere in the New Testament. The, you could not uh, go to church because their concept of church was the people. The church referred to the people that were believers in Jesus Christ, that were called together in a particular area uh, and came together to do the work of the ministry and to worship the Lord together. And the the terms that we're dealing with here, the term church, comes from a Greek word, ekklesia. Uh, that's what it translates. And it literally means those who are called out. And in our day and age, we think in terms of church membership. And the question is, where do we get this idea of membership and what does it mean? Well, uh, church is, you know, those who are called out is what it means. Member, it translates a Greek word in the New Testament which is the word melos, which literally means a limb. So it literally meant a part of the body. And that is exactly how this word is used in the New Testament, is that it refers to a part, a, a person belonging to Jesus Christ as part of the called out ones is a part of that body. And Paul uses this word extensively in uh, the book of Romans. And he begins about chapter 6 and into chapter 7 talking about the members of our body. That is literally the parts of our body. But then in chapter 12, he refers to us as being parts of the same body. And he uses the same word. In uh, Romans uh, 12.4, he says, As in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so there he says very clearly begins to apply this to the church. He does this extensively in the, uh, in the first letter to the Corinthians about chapter six. He starts mentioning it, but in chapter 12, he really has a long exposition on it. And there in chapter 12, as he summarizes his discussion of this, listen to what he says about it. He says, now you, and that is you plural, that means the recipients of this letter, the believers in Corinth. He says, you 
are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So he uh, saw us as being members of Christ and members of one another. And so years before Paul came on the scene, however, before many sayings and terminologies like this, like the idea of being members of one another or members of Christ's church, before these things were, were sorted out like this, we get to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when these things first come together. And what we're going to see in today's text is very simply this, that those who believed Peter's preaching and responded to that message, they repented and they got baptized. And then it says in Acts 2.41, it says this about them. It says, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Paul's hearers had their description change. They had their affiliation changed. They were added to the number of the disciples that we were introduced to in chapter 1. The disciples were together in the upper room praying, and that's when the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts chapter 2. And then we have the sermon of Peter summarized for us, and the response to that sermon, and then it says 3,000 were added to their number. And that's really important to understand is that now they're being counted, uh, reckoned as those who are in Christ. So today what we're going to take a look at is we're going to begin about verse 37. We're going to read through verse 47. And I want you to see here the church membership concept. I want you to see how these people go from one position to another, and it affects their lifestyle. It affects their behavior. And that's what we're going to see. And we're going to kind of zoom in on this idea in verse 42 of the things that they were uh, being continually devoted to. Here's what it says there in Acts chapter 2, uh, beginning with verse 37. Now, when they heard this, that is Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom our Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this wonderful account of the early church. We pray, Lord, this day that you will work in us what you worked in them that day, that you will work in us faith, faith to respond, faith to make a change in our lives. Lord, I pray that you will just uh, manifest yourself to us by your word, and by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, there we have an interesting passage, certainly, and simple enough. I, I offer up to you a, a simple definition of a church member based on what we just read. Is A church member can be thought of as one who believes the gospel and responds with repentance and baptism and becomes actively then involved in gospel ministry with others who've done the same. So really a fairly simple concept is that a church member is one who hears the gospel, responds to it, and jumps in and gets started in that same gospel ministry as the apostles had, as has been handed down to all disciples. They get started in that. They get active in that. And this is what we see people do that come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there are two terms we need to sort out before we go much further. And these two terms are prescriptive and descriptive. Prescriptive and descriptive. Uh, these two terms uh, we use to, to discuss what we're seeing in a narrative like the book of Acts. In a narrative, in a historical narrative, is which is what the book of Acts primarily is, a historical narrative, uh, there are some discourses within it and some other things, but by and large, it's historical narrative. The question is, when we're reading these things and we see these things in a historical narrative, are we to imitate those things? Are we to try to do what they did? Or is the goal of the author just to tell us what they did and he's not necessarily commanding us to do these things? Well, there's a very simple way to tell the difference between these things. Something that the Bible wants us to do, we call prescriptive. In other words, it's prescribed that we should do it. Uh, something that we simply see done in the scriptures, but we're not necessarily expected to do, we call descriptive. And the way to tell the difference is this. If it is prescriptive, in other words, if it's something that God wants us to do as his people, it will be commanded elsewhere in the scripture. It will be either explicitly commanded, you should do this, or it will be implicit in that this would be normative of the experience of believers. And so that's how we tell the difference. We look at these things, we say, okay, is this commanded anywhere else? And if it is, then we say, okay, clearly we should be imitating this. We should be following this. But then there's some of those things that occur that, that are simply being described and we should not follow the example necessarily. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily forbidden because it's not commanded elsewhere, but it's not necessary that we would imitate that. So with that out of the way, then let's move on and take a look at what the early church indeed was doing. I want to focus in on verse 42 because verse 42 gives four things here that it says they devoted themselves to. And the ESV uses the word devoted because this has a continual sense to it. The words that are used here lend themselves to the implication that this was something that became lifestyle for them, these four things that are in this verse. And we'll talk more about that aspect of it later. First, let's get to the list. It is uh, very simply the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And so we take a look at these four things uh, in here. Let's first of all look at this first one, the apostles' teaching. The first thing it says they devoted themselves to is the apostles' teaching. And in some translations, you'll see instead of teaching, it says doctrine. And that's a provocative word for a lot of people because a lot of people say, oh, doctrine's where we get in trouble. And doctrine is, is one of those words that's just going to cause division. And whenever we start talking about doctrine, 
uh, we get we get into something else. Yeah, I'm playing with the light here to get my lighting just right. Sorry about that. Um, but this is what it says: is that the apostles' doctrine is the very first thing mentioned that they are devoted to. That this is something they're making their lifestyle to study this. Uh, the apostles, of course, had the Old Testament. And as we saw from Peter's sermon, that's primarily what they were preaching out of. They were showing from the Old Testament everything that was true about Jesus Christ and how he fulfilled those things. And then we also uh, know that they had the uh, uh, writings of one another, and they were beginning to call those scriptures very early on. And so the apostles, they had the Old Testament. They had the things that Jesus had taught them which is what they were teaching here and continuing to teach. And then they had things that they began to write down because they began to write down the Gospels. They began to write letters to one another to clarify things. And those we have as the New Testament books of the Bible. So in other words, what this is talking about, the Apostles' doctrine or the Apostles' teaching, is simply this, the Bible. It is the Bible. Uh, because they had the Old Testament and used it. We saw Jesus' attitude about the Old Testament, that it was completely inspired, that every word of it would be fulfilled, that it was the entire Old Testament that spoke about Jesus, and he taught his disciples where those things were and what they meant. And then these uh, apostles, Jesus promised, you're going to get the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring you into all truth. He's going to remind you of everything that I said. And these things were written down. And this is what we have today as the churches began to recognize what were the books of the New Testament. So when it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, think of that as Bible study, that we ought to be as a priority, as a lifestyle devoted to the study of the scriptures. This, of course, is prescriptive because this is spoken of throughout, indeed, um, the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. And I've got some cross-references there. You can be Bereans and search this out for yourselves, but the, it is the Word of God that was to be the primary vehicle for faith, that was to be the primary vehicle for sanctification, according to John seventeen seventeen, what Jesus said there. The scriptures are God-breathed and they are useful for everything we need to do. They can make someone complete, equipped for the work of the ministry. And so they were dedicated first to the apostles' teaching. The next thing they were devoted to was the fellowship. And we see this right away in the life of the church, even before the Holy Spirit came. In the book of Acts chapter 1, they were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer together, uh, men and women together, uh, devoting themselves to prayer. And then the book of Acts bears this out as it goes along. Again and again, we're constantly finding them together. And of course, this idea of fellowship is prescriptive. It is something that's spoken of, for instance, in the book of Hebrews, where it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. In other words, the author of the book of Hebrews is saying, don't neglect to meet together so that you can build one another up. And uh, if you want to understand the importance of fellowship, search for the phrase one another in the New Testament. And what you're going to find out is that it shows up in the Gospels. As Jesus in John chapter 13 says, this is how people are going to know that you're mine, that you love one another. 
So he gives them a new command. He says, it's not really a new command, but it's a new command. Here it is, love one another. And that means among the disciples, because he was speaking only to his disciples when he said this. Yes, we're to love God first. Yes, we're to love our neighbor second. But then thirdly, there's this special kind of, of interdisciple love that is to be found in the church. And that can only be done if we are in fellowship. The fellowship of believers is something that the Bible assumes. It's like the Bible assumes God. The Bible never flat out just says, oh, by the way, there's a God, and, and this is what he's like. No, the Bible assumes God and then shows us what he's like by God's words and actions. And so these are important concepts for us to understand that fellowship is assumed Throughout the Bible, we see it in the Old Testament, we see it in the New. And this was house-to-house kind of fellowship. I want to show this to you. And later in this passage that we read here in verse 46, it says this, They received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were attending temple together. So they were going to the temple to worship, to learn where they had a larger space people could teach, to... uh to worship God together, to pray together. And they were breaking bread together in their homes. In other words, this was not something that they merely got together uh, once a week at the temple. This was something they were doing day by day in their homes, taking their meals together. So the, uh, the whole of the Old Testament assumes then this fellowship. Now, this is interesting because many recent polls about why people attend church is many attend church because of the fellowship, because of the connection they get with other human beings when they're there. The problem with that is that the church services that we hold are for worship. These are primarily for our focus to be upon the Lord, not upon one another and what we can gain from one another or relationships with one another. Yes, that'll be present there if it's a good congregation of people. But our most important thing that we do is we come together to worship. So as we sing, we're singing to the Lord. As we pray, we're praying to the Lord. And as we hear the word of God, we are worshiping him through what we are hearing. We are being uh, edified and built up by him through the preaching of the word. And those things we're all doing together, but the focus is the Lord. That is a time of worship. The fellowship should be happening the other 166 hours of the week. The fellowship should be, your cup of fellowship should be full by the time you get to church on Sunday so that on Sunday you can focus on worshiping the Lord together and throughout the week with fellowship together as you break bread together in one another's homes. This is the ideal picture that we see here in the book of Acts. It is also, as you will find, if you work this into your life and this practice into your life, Making fellowship a lifestyle will be a tremendous blessing to you and your church. Uh, we'll look at worship more in depth in a future sermon as we look at what their practices were in the early church. But uh, on to our next thing here. The next thing we talk about is the breaking of bread. And what this primarily seems to be referring to in verse 42 is the Lord's Supper. You know, it's presented in such a way. This is the breaking of bread. And could it be referring also, however, to just having meals together? Well, verse 46 is clearly speaking of just having meals together because they're breaking bread in their homes together. 
And so what the picture I want you to have is that indeed, yes, they were doing both. They were observing the Lord's Supper. We know this from early church history. We know this from the letters that they would get together, they would have meals, and they would uh, observe the Lord's Supper at those meals. But they were also doing it in their homes. And they were having uh, many meals together in their homes. So there's some cross-references there for you concerning the Lord's Supper and the breaking of bread together. So they were dedicated to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, and also prayers. And this is what we saw in chapter 1. Even before the Holy Spirit came, they were engaged in prayer. Jesus came into a world and into a religion, that is Judaism, into this context of a people understanding prayer as a, a primary connection with God. They understood prayer was a a good thing to be practiced. And indeed, then this is like fellowship and that the New Testament somewhat assumes it, but there are many places where it explicitly commands it. Uh, look what Paul says uh, when we get to the book of Ephesians. Uh, he says, praying at all times, you know, this is putting on the full armor of God to be an equipped believer, to, to guard yourself against spiritual attack, Part of that is praying at all times. And he commands us, of course, in the book of Galatians, continue steadfastly in prayer. And then Timothy, he tells him, uh, first of all, I urge supplication, prayers, intersection, sessions, thanksgivings. He uses four different words there for the concept of prayer. He says that these things be made for all people. And then he gets specific also for kings and for all who are in high positions. But it was very clear from the New Testament that we were expected to pray and pray a lot. We're told to pray at all times. We're told to pray for all things. And so this is a powerfully important prescriptive act we see them doing here in the early church. And so this is powerfully important words here, the apostles teaching fellowship, breaking bread and prayers. Um, there's other things mentioned here in the passage, as you see, selling possessions and sharing things. We'll cover that in a future sermon when we get to about chapter 5. There were also signs and wonders done. We'll cover that. We'll talk about that some in chapter 3. Um, and that's not prescriptive because we're never commanded to do these signs and wonders. It's told by Jesus. He tells his disciples that these signs will accompany you. But he doesn't say for how long. He doesn't imply for all future generations or anything like that. So the, the signs and wonders, not necessarily prescriptive, just describing to us then what's going on there. What I want to really put the attention on today, though, is this. What motivated this dedication because these things you know, you look at verse 42 there, and it's like, yes, I know I should study the Bible. You say it every week. Or I know that I should be getting together with people. You say it every week. And I know we should be doing the Lord's Supper. And I know I should be praying. And I should be praying more. And I should be praying together with other believers. You know these things. And I gave you a bunch of cross-references. And if you weren't completely convinced about these things, you have the cross-references. You can be Berean and you can search these things out to see if indeed they're so. But what I want to do 
is rather than just leave you with a list of to-dos, things that you already know to do, and emphasize the importance of doing them, I actually want to equip you to do them. Because the question that I have when I see this list of things is how can I be more faithful in these things besides just determining to do it, besides just gritting my teeth and and clenching my fists and, and doing my best to make sure I do it, how can I be motivated to do it? And this is what we want to do is we want to be continually devoted. And we're going to ask two questions and they are very closely related. First of all, what motivated this change of lifestyle for these people? And how can we then be better motivated to devote ourselves to these things we see they're devoted to? Well, the key here is actually in verse 42. And I want to show this to you. At the beginning of this verse, it says they devoted themselves. And it's given there in the idea of devotion, where they were doing this as a continual practice. The verb tense that's used here and the way it's used, there's both a verb and a participle here. And the way that these are used together gives an emphatic look at the fact that this was a lifestyle, that this was a continuous thing they were doing. It's an imperfect uh, form of a verb combined with a, a participle, which is the idea of being continual. And so this was not a one-time issue. Now, combine this with the fact that they were suddenly accounted differently, as we saw right up here in verse 41. Now, all of a sudden, they're not part of these random crowds. They're not just Israelites. They're now counted with those who were in the upper room, with those who received the Holy Spirit. And the promise to them is they'll receive the Holy Spirit as well. Well, what makes a person then change and adopt this kind of lifestyle? And who's responsible for that change? Let me show you from Peter's sermon. Peter identifies his audience as he identifies Jesus Christ. He first addresses the issue of the, you know, the speaking in the various languages. No, we're not drunk. This is what's fulfilled by the prophet Joel. And he brings that up. Then he turns the conversation to Jesus Christ. And here's how he does that in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Boy, that's a mouthful, but that's really important right there, especially right here, because notice he identifies Jesus in relation to them. Jesus is someone that God drew attention to. God attested to him. Uh, let me bring that uh, to be highlighted for you. God attested himself in Jesus Christ according to these signs and wonders, proving in fact who Jesus Christ was. This is why Jesus did so many signs and wonders. And he did it right there in their midst, right there in Israel and in Jerusalem and in Judea and Galilee and all around the land. He did these things. It became well known that he was doing these things. It's written in non-biblical works that he did these things. And so here we have a testimony to this. He's saying, you are people that saw these things. That's pretty important because this Jesus, you crucified and killed, he says 
in the very next verse, you crucified and killed. And so he is addressing these people and he puts them in this category of you're the people who saw what happened, so they should have known, but instead you crucified and killed this guy. And so then when they understand what Peter's saying and they ask him, hey, what do we do about this? Down here in verse uh, 37, they were cut to the heart. They said, what shall we do? Then Peter says, repent. Repent, he says. And this is also powerfully important because this is telling someone, if you tell someone to repent, repent, you're telling them two things. You're telling them, number one, you're facing the wrong way. Number two, you got to turn around and face the other way. (laughs) So he has told his audience they crucified Christ. He has told his audience they need to repent. And then he goes on with many other encouragements, which are summarized in verse 40, save yourselves from this crooked generation. He's not saying get away from those crooked people. He's saying come out from those crooked people. He is accusing them of being a crooked generation. So now you see Peter is not only saying, hey, you, you saw the signs and wonders you should have known, but instead you crucified him. So you need to repent and you need to come, stop being crooked and come out of this crooked generation. And that's exactly what happened to 3,000 of them that they repented and they got baptized and and they changed their way. They listened to his advice to save themselves from the crooked generation to repent. They went from opposing Christ, some of them maybe even shouting crucify him, to being with those who wept at the cross. Let me say that again. Some of these people who were no doubt there at the Passover, because these are faithful Jews who come to the festivals. They're required to come to Passover, which is when Jesus was crucified. They're required to come to Pentecost, which is the day that we're talking about here in Acts chapter 2. So they would have been there on the Passover, the previous holiday, and many of them would have been in the crowds shouting, crucify him. Or they would have been those approving of his crucifixion and saying, oh yeah, they they uh, crucified that guy, Jesus, finally. Uh, you know, he finally made the wrong person mad and they've, they've put him up on a cross. And, you know, they'd be like, oh yeah, I guess he deserved it then. He must have been a criminal. And they went on. And then Peter says, no, 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 you crucified Jesus and wrongly so. And now they end up repenting trusting in Jesus Christ. And who is this later in the chapter that's breaking bread? It's, it's the people from both sides of the cross. It's the one who, ones who were shouting, crucify him, sitting together with those who are weeping at the cross, who were hiding in fear in the upper room after the crucifixion, who were elated with joy when they saw the risen Christ who are captivated by his teaching when he explained to them the scriptures. These people are having bread together. They are worshiping together. They are sitting under the apostles' teaching together. They are praying together. Who can do that? Well, of course, this is an act of God. This is an act of reconciliation that's so improbable as to be impossible for human beings. We can't get along about things in in today's day and age, things that that should be fairly simple or, or really are trivial. 
and we can't agree on those things, and yet here these people are so radically opposed to one another's positions, all of a sudden brought together. And look what he says in verse 41 about them. They were added. That There were added that day about 3,000 souls. They didn't add themselves. This is a passive verb, which means the people being added are not doing the adding. Someone added them. And we know who it was. It was the Lord. The Lord added to their number. Look in verse 47 where it's stated explicitly here. It's the Lord that added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This makes us remember back in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus said, I will build my church. God took those who were radically opposed to him and he moved them from death to life. And, and we look back, we read the scriptures, we imagine the scene back there at Jesus' crucifixion. And when we picture that scene, and I hope as you're reading, you kind of get a picture of what's going on in every scene of the Bible. And, and you try to understand it, you try to visualize it, and you see these people shouting, crucify him. And when we read that passage, when we think of what must it have been like to be there when that happened, I want you to do that just for a moment. Imagine you're there when Jesus is up before Pilate and Pilate's kind of gesturing, you know, what do I do about this guy? And all the people are shouting, crucify him. Where are you? Are you one of the people shouting, crucify him? And if you're not, why not? What is the difference between you and them? How do you know that if you were there in that time, in the first century AD, if you were there seeing this man be tried, seeing this man humiliated, seeing him bloodied, seeing him presented then by the authorities with the approval of the religious authorities even, up there being mistreated, proclaimed this insurrectionist, proclaimed as a liar, as a blasphemer, would you shout crucify him? Before you answer that, I want you to think about something. Because maybe you've been a believer for a while. Maybe you're, you're far removed from the person you once were. But I want to throw up for you a few descriptions the Bible has for us. How about Genesis 6-5 where it describes the state of humanity in general, the state of man's heart. It says this, The Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you hear all the emphasis there? All the adjectives, everything in the adverbs working together to say that mankind was absolutely, completely rotten to the core all the time. And you say, well, that's before the flood. He flooded the earth and he fixed all that. No, he says it again after the flood. He says, no, this is still true. We even come to the New Testament. This is an Old Testament cranky God we're talking about. This is the only eternal God of the universe. And he says the same thing in the New Testament. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And it goes on and on here in the book of Romans chapter 3 as Paul wraps up his case against each and every one of us. Listen how Paul speaks to the believers at the church in Ephesus. He talks about what they were like before God saved them. And here's what he says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, which means they're really following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. So now he puts himself in there. This Paul, this who used to be the Pharisee, 
this guy who was of the tribe of Benjamin and proud of it, who kept all the law. He says, no, 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 we were carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's powerful. He says the same kind of thing in Colossians. He says, you were once alienated and hostile in mind. That doesn't mean we were just ignorant. That doesn't mean no one just, no one told us about God. No, it means we knew about him and we were hostile. He makes a case in Romans chapter one that every belief, every human being believes at some level in God, knows the truth about God because God's made it clear by the fact that anything's been made, and he's also revealed his nature in what's been made, but we refuse to see it. It's not that we can't see it. It's not that we're, it just hasn't been pointed out to us. It's that we actually willfully turn from it. And this is the case of scripture all the way through. And look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says this of what people were like in their former lives. Um, he says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He makes it very clear right here. No one's going to inherit the kingdom of God that does these kind of things. And he says in verse 11, such were some of you. Wait a minute. There's the key. There's the change. Right there. Do you see this in verse 11? He says, such were some of you. And this is amazing and this is powerful and this is important because what this is showing us is that we can move from there to here, just like the people did in Acts chapter 2, who went from perhaps being some of those in the crowd shouting crucify him to being those who were then at the table with the disciples who were there all along. Now, who were they sitting there with? Why didn't the disciples reject them? Why didn't the disciples say, we were with them all along? Why? Because they all fled. Even the best of them, Peter, denied the Lord three times in front of a servant of all people. They knew who they were. They knew they had failed. They knew they had fallen away. They knew that Jesus went to the cross alone and he went there alone because that was the mission because nothing we could do there could be a benefit. It had to be all of him. And then all of a sudden you see this change here where the, all these things that could be said about a human being and how evil their heart is and everything continually, it becomes the past tense in the New Testament. Because Paul says here, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. And you see all three of those verbs underlined there? They're all passive verbs. God washed you, God sanctified you, God justified you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So it's the Spirit of God by which God has washed you, sanctified you, justified you, just like he did to those people that day. They were opposed to Christ, but they were changed by the message of the gospel. They were made alive then by the Spirit of God. Do you see how important it is for us to know the whole scriptures? They were changed from death to life. They were moved from common to holy. And so it is with us. We are no better than those who stood in the crowd and shouted, crucify him. We are no closer to God than those who drove the nails into his hands. 
we took no less blood to save as the very people that saw to it that Jesus was crucified. It took the same amount of blood to save us as it took to save them. So why do we fall short? Back to our questions here. What motivated the change of lifestyle? What God had done for them. All that they had done and and stood there and gave approval of Jesus being crucified. He washed it away. He forgave them of their sins. They repented. They were baptized. They were added to the number, therefore. So how can we be better motivated to devote ourselves to these things? To turn our eyes upon Jesus. To look full in His wonderful face. Because the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. As the blessed hymn says, His saving of us is no less radical than His saving of anyone, let alone those who crucified Jesus. We are as far removed from God as they are. And for us to be saved, therefore, it's a work of God. And what we do then is we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers, out of gratitude for what God has done for us. When we understand the full extent of what He has done for us, we won't be able to stay quiet about it. We won't be able to let a day go past without mentioning it to someone or praising God for it and and going to Him in prayer and in His Word and meeting Him there and meeting with His people to celebrate these things together. That's what this is all about. That's what motivates us. So what I won't do is I won't show you Acts 2.42 today and say that's what we're supposed to do. Go now and try to do better. I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say this. Look full on Jesus Christ. Look what He has done. Look at the finished work of His atonement on the cross. And then you'll find what you need to be able to do these things. Let's pray. Father God, we praise Your name this day. Lord, I pray this day that each and every one of us would look to You for mercy and for grace. I pray that each one of them each one of us would have an awareness of how we fall short and how we share the the guilt of those even who crucified Christ. But by your great grace, just as Jesus said from the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do, he says for all of us now that forgiveness is available, that forgiveness is possible. And in the joy of being forgiven and having that weight lifted of the burden of our sins, Lord, we joyously partake with one another in these things that you have listed here. Lord, I pray that you'd increase our faith to do each of these things. Make our church pleasing to you. Make your people pleasing to you and make your name great through them in all the earth. Let them be seen as those who are doing these things that are continually dedicated to them. Lord, so that you can make a great name for yourself, that they can see the work that you are doing through your people. Lord, I pray this day you'll carry us along through the week on this great glimpse of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And that, Lord, you will lift us up and you will strengthen us and you will make us to walk in Jesus Christ forevermore.
and amen. Well, I hope this has been a blessing to you. It has to me. And I want to encourage you to contact us if you have any questions or comments or concerns about what you've seen and heard today. Um, you can contact us and learn more about us at whitesrun.org. You can email us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. And I will answer those personally and get right back to you and will not sign you up on a, a useless mailing list or anything of the sort. We'll simply use that to communicate truth to you as best we can uh, by the power of God from the scriptures.